Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. everyone, welcome to episode 20 of True Blue, True Crime. My name's Sean and with me, as always, is my wonderful co-host, Chloe. How are you? Hi, good. We're recording on a Saturday today and we have natural light, so it's really weird, but <laughs> I'm <is> good. <laughs> strange vibes, almost positive vibes. Yeah, we've been really distracted. We've been short talking for like 45 minutes because we're just, it's, I don't know, the sun's out, we're awake. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> a bit no, different. It is a bit different, um, but we've got some pretty dark subject matter to get into today with this case. Our final episode for season two that yeah. we're actually going to end up having to split into a couple of parts. Just It's just such a vast case, isn't it? Yeah. We really had no choice. We've tried to avoid that, uh, generally speaking. But uh, before we get into all of that, we are lucky enough to have some more Patreon supporters this week, Chloe. We are. Welcome and thank you to Alison Hogan, Gillian Dawes and Jay Huxley. Thanks for the support, guys. Much appreciated. Before we get into things today, we wanted to advise our listeners that this case contains content of a graphic nature including crimes against children and animals, suicide themes, alongside frequent discussion surrounding the LGBTQI plus communities. We encourage our listeners to exercise self-care and to look after themselves if choosing to listen to this episode. Today we take a deep dive into the grey northern fringes of Adelaide in the mid-1990s. Salisbury North was described in a 1997 report by the State Housing Trust and City Council as being an urban crime ghetto. A lower-class blue-collar area where cigarettes, joints and cans of alcohol are glued to the palms of its inhabitants, where violence reigns supreme and commissioned housing, boxy and sunless, flanks the dangerous streets. Teenage boys wearing caps backwards brawl while their female teenage counterparts collect parental payments with babies tucked under their arms. Where the young faces weather faster than the unemployment rate rises day by day, peaking at 36%, where education stops at reading the local takeaway menu and marginalised people seeking the shadows lurk with hidden agendas. And in the backyard of 203 Waterloo Corner Road, John and his friends dug a deep, dark hole, the beginning of what would be our country's most prolific and brutal series of serial murders.
Tuesday the 16th of August, 1994. Lower light, 50 kilometres north of Adelaide, South Australia. No wind and no rain. The perfect conditions for brothers Jack and Ron Finch to conduct weed spraying on their 4,000 acre farm. The brothers, known to all locals as a friendly pair with sharp wits, never short of a well-timed one-liner, set off around 8am to get their work done. It was a warm, sunny day, and the brothers worked tirelessly, taking turns driving Jack's haggard Toyota ute with a tank full of agricultural poison on the back, while the other walked alongside, operating the spray arm. After lunch, the brothers returned to their arduous work, spotting what appeared to be a fox burrow up ahead. Ron pointed it out, and Jack manoeuvred the car around the obstacle before they happened upon a bone. They both took it for a sheep bone at first, but a closer look confirmed otherwise. It was a human skull. The brothers inspected the finding, pushing their akubras back on their sweating brows. The skull had been caved in at the back. Whoever it was had clearly come to a brutal end from a vicious blow. The brothers walked back to the fox burrow, noticing more scattered bones as they did. That's no burrow, Ron said. That's someone's grave back there. John Justin Bunting was born on the 4th of September 1966 in Inala, Queensland. It was a low socioeconomic area suffering from high crime and unemployment rates. Bunting's parents, Tom and Jan, gave him a solid working class upbringing and he grew into a regular teenage boy who enjoyed hobbies such as astronomy, electronics and photography. Bunting would begin to display an interest in chemistry which evolved from the photography sub-art of developing the pictures. He'd used chemicals in a makeshift darkroom at home. Bunting would attempt to study chemistry at Anala High but didn't have the aptitude and prerequisites to do so. Alongside this developing interest was Bunting's fascination with digging, which manifested in his carving out of tunnels under the family home with friends. He'd dig tunnels as deep as four metres down, five metres long, and brace the walls with wood. This was until his father Tom caught onto it and stopped Bunting in his tracks, literally. Into his teenage years, Bunting's interests would turn to weaponry, firearms in particular. He'd extract gunpowder from fireworks to make rocket mortars, He had a pallet rifle and would eventually acquire more powerful calibres of rifles and shotguns too. And with the weaponry obsession came an accompanying interest in World War II, which introduced Nazism to bunting. He tried unsuccessfully to get his hands on a Nazi flag and SS uniform at one point, instead settling for a copy of Hitler's Mein Kampf and painting a swastika inside the boot of his first car. Bunting already disliked gay men and pedophiles. For some reason, he was unable to distinguish between the two, and the reason he disliked them in the first place is unclear. But his interest in Nazism would ignite the spark of hatred into a full-blown fire, which would eventually become all-consuming. Bunting would brag to friends about gay bashings he committed, but to begin with, at least, no one seemed to take any of Bunting's words too seriously. It was all just bravado. One possible influencing factor in Bunting's hatred for gay men and pedophiles is something that happened to him when he was eight. This wouldn't come out until later in life, Bunting kept it suppressed for many years, 
but apparently he and a mate of his were sexually assaulted and beaten by the mate's older brother. The ordeal finally came to an end when his mate's father came home. Any chance of revenge upon his attacker was quashed when the older brother of his friend suddenly died in a motor vehicle accident. Bunting never got closure and this bothered him. But this attack on an innocent eight-year-old John Bunting might have simply fueled a predisposition, or it could have sparked something that might have remained dormant had it not happened. We'll never know. One thing we do know is that at age 15, Bunting would father a child named Tammy. He'd have nothing to do with her really as time wore on, and the relationship with her mother, Lisa, was fleeting. And that would become a pattern for Bunting. Casual relationships that were only surface level. Bunting completed year 11 at high school, then went to work in several different jobs. Sign writing, installing indoor sports centre nets, and lastly, before departing his home state of Queensland for Adelaide, Bunting worked at a crematorium. So his childhood was seemingly rough and tumble. He'd endured a sexual assault and had some disturbing interests really come to the forefront and shape his personality. Other than the glaring white supremacy he displayed and accompanying disdain for gay people and pedophiles, Bunting was generally regarded by friends and colleagues as a likeable and down-to-earth bloke. In 1988, Bunting took a casual job working at a motor museum painting the floors. He was into cars too, Bunting. He hadn't intended to settle in Adelaide. The original plans for him and a pair of friends was to head to Western Australia But vehicle troubles had laid them up in Adelaide and when the friends went their own way for their own reasons, Bunting remained and set up shop in the city of churches. He was living in a caravan park and working at this motor museum when he turned 21. Bunting was now a fresh-faced adult who'd later grow scraggly facial hair and finally a beard. In spite of his rough look, he had a squeaky, high-pitched voice that sounded almost as if it were breaking. He was short, got chubbier year after year, and had light brown hair. He was an average-looking guy, the sort of person you'd pass in the street and not look twice at. And once again, work colleagues regarded him the same. Decent enough, normal knockabout fellow who really made a minimal impression upon them. A written reference for Bunting upon his departure from the Motor Museum said he was a very diligent and intelligent worker who carried out the work required of him in a thorough and enthusiastic manner. Bunting's next job will be working at the South Australian Meat Corporation, where he undertook casual general labour, requiring basic knife skills. His friend Kevin Reid had hooked him up with this job, and by late 1988, Bunting was residing with Reid and his partner Michelle White in a share house in Adelaide's northern suburbs. So Reid and White would get to know John Bunting on a deeper level while living with him. Bunting displayed an absolute enthusiasm for his job at the meatworks. Seemingly relishing the tasks of deploying a stun gun on the animals before cutting their throats, Bunting also seemed to bask in the ingrained stench he would bring home from the meatworks, something that didn't bother him as it did others due to having no sense of smell, something that occurred during childhood when he'd suffered an illness. During their time living with him, Reed and White witnessed Bunting displaying a number of macabre and frightening traits. He once again spoke openly about his hate for gay men and pedophiles, speaking of bashing them with iron bars. He researched making poisons and the effects of certain chemicals on the human body. He had an array of guns, acquired a blowtorch, a balaclava, rope, and a knife with a long curved blade. 
White and Reed, upon stumbling across these items, wanted to report him to the police, but were convinced by Bunting not to. The straw that broke the camel's back of their share house arrangement came when Bunting killed Kevin Reed's bull terrier after it attacked his blue healer. Bunting showed Michelle White the dog strung up in the shed before dragging it out to his car in a plastic bag. They told Reed that the dog had run away. Bunting returned a short time later with the left leg of his jeans torn apart, saying to White, I had some trouble, it was lying on the floor of the passenger side and it woke up and started to attack me while I was driving. Bunting added he just kept putting his boot into the dying canine, eventually pulling over and kicking it out of the car onto the side of the road before driving off. In 1989, Bunting undertook a metalwork course where he would meet and befriend a man named Mark Hayden. Hayden was a yes sir, no sir, three bags full kind of guy, sharp as a bowling ball and a pin short of a dozen. The pair would form a bond, bashing about the salt flats out at lower light, in the direction of Snowtown, in Hayden's beat-up land cruiser. During this metalworks course, he also met 18-year-old Veronica Tripp. She was described as reliant on her parents due to intellectual difficulties and had been deaf until the age of eight, at which time surgery improved that sense, but she also suffered from poor vision. Bunting and Tripp would eventually marry in September of 1989, their courtship consisting mainly of Bunting taking her for rides on his motorcycle to see horror and war movies, anything with blood and guts. Their parents weren't thrilled with the budding relationship and quick marriage. Veronica's parents, Jim and Patsy, thought Bunting had a foul mouth and was trouble. Bunting's parents, his mother Jan in particular, thought Veronica was simple and not good enough for her son. Veronica would begin to see cracks in Bunting's previously pleasant exterior during their early stages of marriage, as he became verbally abusive and began throwing household objects at her from time to time. Alongside the manifesting of Bunting's dark side, his storytelling chops would also begin to surface. It was a feature of the man, if you had to pick one and could tolerate the subject matter. On the 14th of December 1991, the pair would move out of their share house accommodation into their own residence, an unremarkable double-fronted housing trust property at 203 Waterloo Corner Road in Salisbury North. Bunting, in his teen years, had befriended a man named Benny. Benny was in his 40s. Their relationship formed around Benny taking John under his wing to exact revenge on gay men and pedophiles. The setup was Bunting, a puny teenager back at this time, would solicit a pedophile from the street and lead the man to his brother, which was the much older and larger Benny. Benny and Bunting would then bash the pedophile senseless. The pair would also target gay men by raiding their homes, upturning their contents and defecating on their beds. One of his favourite tales he relished retelling Veronica years later was the time he and a friend, presumably Benny, had captured a guy who'd molested a former girlfriend of his, strangled him and cut him into pieces. They had then driven back from Melbourne to Adelaide and thrown him out the window, piece by piece, soaked in blood and laughing all the way. Bunting's mentor was taken from him when Benny suddenly died from throat cancer. But the bond the pair had during Bunting's formative years seemed to have had a marked impact on the next role Bunting would take, that of the mentor himself. And it was in Salisbury North in late 1991 that John Bunting would meet Robert Wagner. The pair met through a mutual friend who lived in the area. 
Wagner was a tall and broad-shouldered young man whose slender fingers would curl into fists when he became angered. He towered over John Bunting, but unlike Bunting, Wagner was illiterate and inarticulate. Wagner was five years younger than Bunting, and fairly quickly the two bonded, most likely out of their mutual infatuation of white supremacy and Nazism. Wagner had an Alsatian he named Adolf, was flocked with tattoos, and was known by the nickname of Lurch due to his size and lumbering sullen manner. Born on the 28th of November 1971, Wagner had endured a tough childhood. His father had abandoned him, his sister and mother, when Wagner was just six months old. He'd become an introverted and moody youngster who shied away from the older teenage boys. It would become apparent that Wagner had been sexually abused by a teenage son of a family friend when he was seven. Wagner, traumatised by the experience, attempted suicide shortly thereafter by overdosing on his mother's sleeping pills. Into his early teens, Wagner, who couldn't read or write and had no academic inkling whatsoever, would begin skipping school and wandering around the local area of Elizabeth West in Adelaide. During his wandering, Wagner, an impressionable, lonely and lost soul, would become easy prey for a pedophile named Barry Lane. Lane, who was at the time of luring Wagner, a gay transgender person who went by the name of Vanessa on occasion, was born Barry Wayne Venables on the 7th of August 1955. He was a sickly child who was put into foster care before he was rehomed to be raised by his grandmother. Lane displayed a penchant for wearing female clothing from a young age and by his mid-teens was openly gay, pursuing sexual relationships with other boys. In his late teens into his early 20s, Lane travelled around Australia, worked as a gardener, did his back and subsequently claimed a disability pension while continuing to struggle with his evolving identity. Lane took hormones to reduce body hair and emphasised the femininity that he believed lay dormant within him. But Lane also harboured pedophilic desires. This would become evident when he was jailed for four months for indecently assaulting two young boys under the age of 12. Counselling thereafter didn't seem to work for an outwardly repentant Barry Lane and he found himself trawling the streets of North Salisbury and Adelaide's North, perving on young boys while wearing hot pink skirts and fishnet stockings. After Lane grew tired of the locals pelting rocks at him as he walked by, he ceased dressing in women's clothes and dropped the name Vanessa, instead concentrating his efforts on luring young boys, like that of presently 14-year-old Robert Wagner. After a series of back-and-forths with Wagner's agitated mother Carol, who was nothing short of unimpressed to discover her boy had been spending his days with a gay, transgender pedophile in Barry Lane, Wagner simply disappears off the face of the earth. He shows up again in Salisbury North four years later, a lumbering adult with a foul temper and Lane still attached to him at the hip. Carol visits the pair regularly at the government housing they've acquired at number one Bingham Road. The outwardly gay pair are regularly berated by their neighbours and the house is a hotbed of filth, with feline and canine excrement soiled carpets, flea infestations, piles of unwashed dishes and mould and mildew at every turn. Lane, an angular-featured, thin-lipped man with a gaunt complexion and receding hairline, strikes a stark contrast against his brooding, tall counterpart in Wagner. The pair's relationship is volatile, with punching, kicking and screaming a regular occurrence. 
Neighbours are perplexed by the strange pair, who boast about their sexuality and attempts at bestiality with their increasing pack of dogs, having now added another Alsatian and a Doberman to their pack, along with a beefed-up home security system. There's a big chance that John Bunting probably despised both Barry Lane and Robert Wagner upon meeting them one afternoon in late 1991. But soon enough, Bunting would sort out his perceptions and put a narrative to the story of Robert Wagner and Barry Lane that would suit his own ends. Their initial bonding and easy relationship around the subject of white supremacy was further forged by Bunting's belief that Wagner wasn't truly gay, but had been coerced into this state of being by the gay and pedophilic Barry Lane. Bunting hated Lane with a passion from the outset, but he took his time building a relationship with not just these two, but other locals too, building a circle of miscreants who would listen to his unabated tirades about his burning hatred for gays and pedophiles. Bunting would use Lane to elicit information about the operational methods of other pedophiles. Lane, whose mind was likely fixated on the nearby primary school across the road from where he and Wagner lived, was blissfully unaware of Bunting's agenda. Meanwhile, Bunting was learning of Wagner's own sexual abuse as a child and taking the younger but considerably bigger man under his wing. Wagner listened to every single word of Bunting's misdirected, charming voice. Mark Hayden too, Bunting's mate from his metalworking course, is also a regular in the growing circle. Living close by, the introverted and mild-mannered Hayden, complete with a beard and creased scowl lines on his face, is a fixture at the Bunting residence. When he's not there, he's tinkering in the junkyard cars that flock his backyard, in the house he shares with his father, in nearby Catalina Avenue, Elizabeth East. He too, like Wagner and Lane, was on a government pension, so time was a fluid commodity for these guys. And there were others too moving in this circle, just too many names to mention in the scope of what this case will become without confusing matters. But one of these people who became friends with Robert Wagner and Barry Lane in late 1991 was named Clinton Trezice. Trezice was 17, and up until recent times when he'd seemingly found his place in life, Trezice had spent the best part of his childhood in foster care with his brother Scott. His upbringing still consisted of what was described as fractured weekly family contact with his mother and presumably his sister Cherie, but he very much grew up part of the administration. Into his teens, Trezice would meander through a spate of different churches and religions, seeking out acceptance and security in what had been a confusing life to date. At age 16, Trezice began identifying as gay, and as a result, soured the few friendships he had, a sign of the times perhaps. But Trezice had returned to schooling as a mature age student and had found himself a place to live in Adelaide's Northern Housing Trust region. Trezice, with a copper blonde rinse, freckled face and gap-toothed grin, is immediately noticed by a gay-hating John Bunting, who met the teenager through Wagner and Lane. Bunting refers to him as happy pants, for the obvious reasons that Trezice wore brightly coloured trousers, but one could also safely assume his nickname was tinged with reference to his sexuality. One day in mid-1992, Trezice was at the Bunting household, just relaxing and hanging out, when John Bunting crept up behind the 17-year-old as he sat on the couch and bludgeoned him over the head with a shovel. Trezice's skull caved in and he fell to the floor, and Bunting finished the job he set out to do. Needing reinforcements to help dispose of his fresh kill, 
Bunting called in Barry Lane, Robert Wagner and Mark Hayden. They scooped up the teenager's lifeless body and threw him into the back of Hayden's Land Cruiser before driving out to Lower Light, a rural area about 20 minutes from Salisbury North. Here, they dug a shallow grave about 10 centimetres deep in a barren windswept paddock and haphazardly threw in Trezias' body without very little care or effort into covering the body. At first, people think Clinton Trezias had simply taken off. His family, after having not been able to get in touch with him after leaving a number of messages, eventually go round to his flat in August of 1992. Cherie, Trezias' sister, and their father obtain a key from the housing trust and go to inspect the property. Inside, it's a putrid assault on the senses. Cans of food strewn across the floors, flies and maggots crawling all over the place, faeces littering the young man's bedroom floor. The place clearly isn't inhabited, and they assume, probably due to the struggles Clinton had experienced to that point, that he'd simply left of his own free will, found someplace else that he wanted to be. Despite this, they door knock a few neighbouring properties, eventually speaking to a man named Barry Lane. The effeminate man flutters his arms about and offers up nothing, his eyes darting all over the place as Cherie asks if they knew anything about where her brother might have gone. Before long, a clearly agitated Robert Wagner thunders to the door, rips into Lane for anything he may or may not have said, and promptly slammed the door in Cherie's face. So based on all of their inquiries, Clinton Trezias' family think he's left by himself, and as a result, they don't report him missing until 1995. Shortly before this, in August of 1994, farmers and brothers Ronald and Jack Finch discover what we know to be Clinton Trezias' body, buried in a shallow grave on their 4,000-acre farm at Lower Light, the details of which we covered in the introduction. They contact the police, and initially there is a lot of conjecture about the identity of the victim and who might be responsible. Other crimes and perpetrators are potentially linked. Even the family murder suspects come up at one point. But in the end, the case goes cold. They're unable to identify the skeletal remains and nothing found in or around the shallow grave gives police any clues as to whom it might be. In 1995, it's actually Clinton's mother who reports him missing. Police look into his last known whereabouts and the only records they could find were of a financial counselling service he'd attended in July of 1992, some two and a half to three years ago. Since this time, Clinton also hadn't accessed his bank account and funds from his government disability pension that had been accumulating without any withdrawals. Clinton's mother provided medical examiners with a photograph of her boy, but sadly, two separate examinations by forensic experts would determine that these were not the remains of Clinton Trezice. It would be a further five years until this was proven wrong and they were positively identified. Meanwhile, life went on for John Bunting and his growing crew who hung on to every word that spilled from his mouth. His marriage to Veronica was not doing well. They rarely interacted and Veronica mostly kept her mouth shut under advice from Bunting himself. Barry Lane, however, couldn't keep his mouth shut, relaying the tale about what had happened to young Clinton Trezias to Veronica on more than one occasion. He shook and sputtered his words as he told her, pleading she didn't tell John he'd said a word for fear of retribution. Bunting, by this time, is working with a mate at the local abattoir, honing his knife skills and relishing the sight of dying animals. And he's resumed digging holes. Despite being in his mid to late 20s now, 
enlisting the services of manservant Mark Hayden and his new protege Robert Wagner. Over the next few years, Bunting and Wagner grow very close. Bunting taking the younger man, who was twice his size, under his wing, attempting to teach him to read and write while simultaneously indoctrinating him with a growing hatred for gays and pedophiles. Wagner is as strong as a bull and happily goes about doing Bunting's bidding, enamoured with the smaller man's bravado and authoritative air. But the closer he gets to Bunting, the further Wagner moves away from his partner, Barry Lane. Lane, who is frightened of Bunting by now but still playing the role of inside man, shedding light on pedophile information for Bunting, is becoming increasingly agitated at the amount of time Wagner is spending with Bunting. The violence between the pair begins to escalate. Bunting, meanwhile, has turned good Samaritan, and his and Veronica's place at Waterloo Corner Road has become somewhat of a halfway or DOS house. Bunting begins bringing in strays from the streets and feeding them cups of coffee, preaching to them about the dangers of drugs. Drugs, gay men and pedophiles, Bunting hates them all equally and doesn't discriminate. Veronica grows tired of the comers and goers, and Bunting's crew of miscreant friends in Wagner, Hayden, Lane and others... But there's not much she can do. As we said, she was of a low level of intelligence and had some physical incapacities or restrictions. But she was certainly growing weary of Bunting's increasingly erratic behaviour and his frequent roundtable tirades. Bunting had even started what he called a wall of spiders, where he would detail the names, locations and contact details of people he suspected were pedophiles and or gay. He'd prank call these people, launching verbal assaults over the phone, threatening to bash them and calling them every insult under the sun before hanging up. Bunting, now equipped with a BMW motorcycle with a 38 fitted with the silencer stored under the seat, is positioning himself as the neighbourhood watchdog, intent on punishing suspected pedophiles and gay men. Women, too, could be pedophiles. Tooth fairies, Bunting called them, alongside the male rock spider. A motorbike accident and subsequent broken arm ends Bunting's employment at the abattoir and he gets another job at the local foundry. He continues with his proxies, digging the huge hole under the tank stand in the backyard. But I think we have a pretty good idea of the backdrop here. A few of the main characters we're dealing with, their personalities and what brought them to this juncture in their lives. But there's another main character here, a family of them actually, with a matriarch named Elizabeth Harvey. And alongside a few of her family members, they make up the last of this sordid ensemble cast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Elizabeth Harvey was born in September 1953 
Her birth name was Christine Ude, and she was the last of three children to Joyce and Peter Ude. Peter was seemingly an absent father, unapproachable, albeit intelligent and theatrical, it was said. Joyce, on the other hand, was a cold, iron-skinned and granite-chinned woman, heavy-handed with her children and physically and emotionally abusive. She was also an alcoholic who liked nothing more than to frock up and head to cabaret, returning home pissed as a chook at ungodly hours of the morning. By age six, Elizabeth's father was no longer around. He and Joyce having parted ways, and now Joyce had a new man by her side, the mountainous figure of a bloke named George. He was very violent, and Elizabeth and her sister Diane spent many nights huddled up in bed together, scared out of their young minds. Joyce would say things to Elizabeth like, you should have ended up as an abortion in a bucket. And that's an intense thing to say, but it gives you a good idea of the sort of woman and mother Joyce was. Elizabeth is forced to call the fist-throwing George dad, which she hates. At age seven, George molests Elizabeth for the first time, and that pattern continues through her younger years. When Elizabeth told her mother about this, she copped a backhand across the mouth that sent her to the floor. Joyce later attempted suicide and her daughter Elizabeth would try the same at age 17. The whole family, ravaged by anger and violence, plied with alcohol and drugs in a destructive circle that wouldn't stop. And it never did end for Elizabeth Harvey. These early life events would set her on this perpetual merry-go-round of self-destruction and the constant need for a man in her life. Her first child, Troy, who would go on to use his mother's maiden name of Eude in later years, is born when she's 23 years old in 1976. He was born out of a six-year affair with a married man who wanted nothing to do with the child or Elizabeth when he heard about the pregnancy. Desperate to get out of a home under the yoke of her drunken mother with a now two-year-old Troy in tow, Elizabeth answers an ad for a housemaid in Broken Hill. At the airport on arrival, she meets the boss... Spiros Vulsarkis, a larger-than-life character, restaurateur and divorcee with no kids. He wined and dined Elizabeth like a date and not a prospective employee, and despite him being 17 years older than her, the pair eventually become romantically involved. It was a marriage based on circumstance, not love. Spiros was charismatic and seemingly solid in life, and he was great with young Troy. They married three months after meeting, and the violence began immediately, beginning again the cycle Elizabeth Harvey had found herself in more than once. The couple would have three children together, James, Adrian and Christopher, between 1979 and 1985, before the family moved to the northern suburbs of Adelaide. A cycle of sustained sexual abuse would follow, with Spiros raping not only Elizabeth, but sexually abusing both Troy and Jamie as well. It was an extremely troubled life the family lived, and they moved around a lot, with neither Elizabeth or Spiros able to hold down a job. Troy was a troubled and angry kid, prone to violent outbursts. He'd thrash at the bathroom door with his legs, cursing at Elizabeth to let him in, and if she locked him in his room, he'd light a fire under his bed. But Troy was also very intelligent, had a high IQ, and was judged by teaching staff to be bored out of his wits with the lack of challenge he had. And when all things were equal, Troy was said to be quite a loving child to his mother. But the sustained abuse at the hands of Spiros undoubtedly took a toll on Troy's psyche. Having been living in separate bedrooms for nearly 12 months, 
One night, Spiro barges into Elizabeth's bedroom, veins popping out of his neck and brutally rapes her. She moves out, pregnant now with their son, Jamie. And not to forget their two other sons, who we mentioned before, but it's Jamie and Troy who will be central figures in this tale as we move along. Jamie was a good baby, but pretty early on he came down with some kind of undiagnosed illness that caused his hair to turn white and fall out. He was hospitalised and cared for around the clock, which ate away at Elizabeth, until he was eventually returned to her months later, recovered and a much happier young toddler. Jamie grows into a cherub-faced, bubbly young boy, but has strange signs from a young age, displaying incoherent babbling and seemingly involuntary reflexes. Medical staff put this down to him being a late bloomer, but turns out Jamie had epilepsy and wasn't diagnosed correctly until he was 15 years old. Jamie too can be a bit of a monster, but is also loving like his half-brother Troy. Jamie and Troy have tension from the beginning, One time, Troy threw Jamie against the wall and threatened him by holding a knife to his throat. But Jamie's mind, along with those of his brothers, ultimately goes to some pretty dark places at the hands of their abusive father and life of upheaval. When Jamie was just seven, his father Spiros dropped dead of a heart attack while fetching a glass of water. Jamie watched on as the paramedics tried to save his father's life. They carried him out on a stretcher at 3am and that was the last anyone in the family would see Spiros. He was dead by 6am at 49 years of age. Elizabeth, an already damaged woman who abused prescription medication, spirals further into depression after the passing of her abusive husband. Now with four boys in tow, she struggles to make ends meet, working odd jobs while trying to keep the boys in line. One time when Troy was particularly upset, Elizabeth's caustic mother, Joyce, snarked at the boy words to the effect that he shouldn't be upset because Spiros wasn't his real father anyway. Troy had been under the impression that he was, and from this time onwards reverted to using his mother's maiden surname of Eude. And just for the sake of accuracy, Elizabeth Harvey was going by the name Christine Vlasakis, obviously, when she was married to Spiros. She had many name changes over time, but for consistency, we'll refer to her by the name she's most commonly known as. Within months of Spiros's death, Elizabeth, unable to survive without a man in her life, seemingly, starts a relationship with a man named Marcus Johnson. It's an up and down affair from the word go. For a time, Marcus's son, David Johnson, came and lived with the family, and the Johnson-Harvey crew moved around almost a dozen times during their time as a unit, if you could call it that, continuing the cycle of instability. Marcus, a pint-sized man with a bald head and wingnut ears, had intended to be somewhat of a positive life force for the struggling young Harvey clan when he came on the scene. He held down a steady job at a local car manufacturing plant, but it was a stormy relationship intentions aside – Elizabeth was falling into a deeper depression, abusing Valium and benzodiazepines, and she became addicted to shopping and gambling on pokies during this time. But Harvey's manic depressive episodes would later lead to her being diagnosed with bipolar disorder. One can only imagine the toll this took on her and her family, with the constant moving, struggling to make ends meet, and Elizabeth still under the yoke of suppression from her nasty piece of work mother, Joyce. Elizabeth and Marcus didn't intend to marry initially, but they did wed in the end. It lasted all of 12 months before they separated, and around this time, Elizabeth's mum became terminally ill with cancer. 
The family shifted again, ending up in Salisbury North. Elizabeth, who aged poorly, is now obsessive-compulsive, bipolar, and regularly strung out on prescription meds, is so consumed with her own darkness, she misses most of what is happening with her boys. Troy, now into his mid to late teens, is into drugs, dope, dabbling with heroin, and drinking heavily. He attempted to hang himself from a curtain rod one time also, and although she never told them, Elizabeth too had tried to overdose on pills at least twice in her life to this point. Jamie too was in a dark place, a previously jubilant youngster who had ideals of becoming a mechanic and an electronics engineer, the sexual abuse he'd suffered at the hands of his father Spiros, he was now enduring at the hands of his older brother Troy. Troy would regularly rape Jamie, his half-brother being a couple of years older and having hit puberty, and the smaller Jamie unable to stop it. He told no one about it and his mother never knew. In 1993, Joyce, Elizabeth's mother, died and Jamie fell victim to a neighbourhood predator. Geoffrey Payne, a seemingly friendly neighbour, easily weaved his way into the fold through Elizabeth Harvey's foggy drug-addled vision. He enticed the boys into bike rides and various little innocuous activities over time before he began showing softcore porn to Jamie, then harder stuff, before finally moving on to brutally sexually assaulting the young boy. Payne would threaten Jamie that if he ever told anyone, he would murder his mother. Meanwhile, another neighbour had been watching the family from the shadows too, secretly cut up that he wasn't getting in on the action that Geoffrey Payne was. One day, a man showed up on Elizabeth Harvey's doorstep, offering sagely words of advice that Geoffrey Payne was a pedophile and had been sexually abusing her boys, with the exception of Troy. This good Samaritan's name was Barry Lane. Harvey didn't like the little man as he came into her house, waffling on with seemingly half-truths, but he brought along with him this hulking, lumbering bloke, expressionless and emotionless, who he'd introduced as his fiancé, Robert Wagner. Harvey slumped at the table as Lane continued to earbash her about how pedophiles operate, an apparent expert, his real-life experiences beginning to shine through as he goes along. Wagner plays with the boys, Nintendo, footy, seemingly on the same intellectual level as them, but Lane was persistent, and he knew a man who could fix Geoffrey Payne right up, a man who took care of people like this. 1993 was a bad year for Elizabeth Harvey. Her mother Joyce died and Troy would tell her, after Elizabeth had connected the dots, that Spiros had raped him all those years ago. Troy, now a handsome 18-year-old, sobbed in his mother's arms after unburdening himself. Jamie, however, clams up and after what he'd endured at the hands of Geoffrey Payne, goes to a darker place and begins abusing substances of his own. Seemingly, nothing is done about Geoffrey Payne for some time by the authorities after reports of him abusing the boys surface. It appeared that he was left to stalk and berate the kids from his house before and after he was bailed, being arrested on the sexual abuse charges. Payne would sit on his porch and take photos and yell out at the boys from across the street, taunting them and reminding them about what he'd done. And Elizabeth Harvey had sunken into a complete psychotic breakdown, seemingly suffering a split or compartmentalised personality, splashing in the bath demanding she be called Laura on different occasions. Then one day in 1994, a man named John Bunting showed up on the doorstep of the Harvey household, flanked by his quiet, lurch-like counterpart, Robert Wagner. 
Bunting, who rode a motorcycle with a 38 under his seat, was a passionate man and a good talker, and had an air of confidence and presence when he walked into the home. Elizabeth Harvey was instantly enamoured with John Bunting. Bunting warned her of Barry Lane, telling her that he's a pedophile too and would do the same as Geoffrey Payne. Bunting's voice is calming to her, and he talks about gay men and pedophiles and fat people and people who have intellectual disabilities, all folks that he didn't like. Her boys instantly like Bunting too, this knight in shining armour. He became a fixture and a popular figure around the household very quickly, backing up his talk by riding up Payne's driveway at night, revving his motorcycle and shining the light into the pedophile's house, sending Payne scurrying away like a mouse back into his house. Elizabeth Harvey was head over heels for John Bunting from then on. Her kitchen became a meeting room for vigilante pedophile meetings and her son Jamie, in particular, became quite entranced with John Bunting. Jamie has stood by and watched the cops seemingly do nothing about Geoffrey Payne after they'd reported him. It took so long for anything to be done, then they bailed him. While we might understand that the wheels of justice can turn slow, it was certainly a case of justice delayed, justice denied for Jamie Vlasakis. But John Bunting was planning affirmative action. He was going to fix all of that. He was this well-spoken, well-intended, polite and intelligent guy who would take Jamie on a motorbike ride and to the movies. It was a positive male force that Jamie hadn't had to that point. Bunting is supportive of Jamie and alongside his daily vitriol and talk of violent retribution encourages him to go back to school and to go for victims of crime compensation. Bunting and Harvey would eventually be in a sexual relationship by the end of 1994 and while Bunting was still married to Veronica, that would soon be over. In 1995, he booted Veronica out of their home at Waterloo Corner Road. She'd put up with a lot all in all, been a good wife to John Bunting. Veronica was upset, but in the end, relieved, and long term, it'd be the best thing for her. She'd move back in with her parents after this, and Elizabeth Harvey and her boys would end up moving into the home with Bunting. Jamie had already been staying with Bunting by this time, sleeping in the lounge room, hanging out with Bunting during the day, attending his meetings and hearing details of the wall of spiders who he was presently targeting. Bunting was 28 by now and Jamie was 14. He'd found a father figure and a hero, and Bunting had a new protege. Robert Wagner had seemingly moved on from protege status. He was now standing on his own two feet and taking action. His and Barry Lane's relationship had really deteriorated over the past few years, Lane had been growing increasingly jealous of the time Wagner was spending with Bunting, all the while sidling up to Bunting with information, trying to play both sides of the fence. Meanwhile, Bunting hated Lane and had been using him for nothing more than information while simultaneously moulding Robert Wagner in his own image. Lane and Wagner's relationship had always been turbulent, but it was reaching all new levels of violence. With Wagner, no longer a 14-year-old kid, now handing out much more of the punishment. The beginning of the end would come after one of Bunting's usual Friday night roundtable meetings, where he'd close his eyes and randomly select a spider from his wall to call and abuse. After this meeting, Bunting told Elizabeth Harvey that Barry Lane had touched one of her boys. Harvey promptly lost it, and Wagner, sensing opportunity, jumped up and punched Lane in the face, sending him running out of the house and down the road, his legs flailing out in every direction as he tried to get away from his gigantic fiancée. 
it'd only be a few more beatings until Wagner had kicked Lane out for good. While Lane loaded the last of his things into the moving truck, he knocked on the window of the house and said, Robert, Robert, do you have a telephone directory? Wagner ripped out the P section and said to Lane, here, P for pedophile, it's the only section you'll ever need. You filthy bastard, you took me in when I was 14. With that, their relationship was over. Bunting had effectively splintered this thundering right-hand man from his rock spider partner. Wagner wasted no time beginning to date girls and inevitably moved into Bunting's house for a while. Wagner began volunteering for the CFA, where most people gave him and his verbose, sullen demeanour a wide berth. He also began trawling the nightclub scene along Hindley Street and bashing gay men in preparation for his work with John. During this time, Elizabeth Harvey had begun doing arts and crafts lessons, where she'd meet another lady named Elizabeth, Elizabeth Sinclair. Elizabeth Sinclair came from a dirt-poor and downtrodden New Zealand family who'd lived an impoverished existence. She had a swag of kids with her, her mother Pat, and few prospects and little money when she came to Australia. She initially had a crush on John Bunting when she first entered the group of misfits through her friendship with Harvey, but settled for Mark Hayden, the bearded mechanical tinkerer who was less than bright but would suit her needs. The pair would date, if you could use that word in these circles, and eventually marry and move into a house they'd bought in Blackham Crescent, Smithfield Plains. But this wasn't before a jaunt to Queensland, where Elizabeth nagged Hayden to take her for a fresh start. Things turned upside down in Queensland rapidly, and they hightailed it out of there. In the meantime, Mark's father, who Mark lived with and cared for and received a government pension to do so, had a tumble inside his house and broke his hip. It was one week before his sister found him and the old man went downhill from there. Mark Hayden had left without a word or care for his father, then rolled back into town once things went bad in Queensland, without a word once again. And when his old man was decrepit and in aged care, he got him to sign over the house before on selling it to developers so they could buy out this place in Smithfield Plains. That part of the story is worth telling because hearing they've bought a house, you could have been forgiven for thinking Mark Hayden might have had a head on his shoulders. He didn't. At least not one that wouldn't have turned on his family to get an inch ahead. But Elizabeth Sinclair, now Elizabeth Hayden, wasn't the only woman who'd fallen under John Bunting's spell. Suzanne Allen lived nearby to the house at Waterloo Corner Road. She was 46, had an intellectual disability a round face and a slew of medical issues ranging from hypertension to bowel disease. She was an avid painter of flowers and wildlife and an outwardly bubbly woman. She had become obsessed with little Johnny and would regularly pop over and leave him little love notes until he moved to the country. Bunting thought it would be a good idea at one point to move two hours east of Adelaide to a remote settlement called Bacara where he and Elizabeth and the kids would have more room to move. The environment would also serve his purposes better, fewer prying eyes. Nevertheless, Bunting would keep the property at Waterloo Corner Road accessible by having his ex-wife Veronica move back in while they were on their country sabbatical. 
they'd return as needed and eventually move back altogether. And upon moving back, Bunting and Wagner would spend a bit of time around at Suzanne Allen's house. Suzanne also had a boarder, a guy who lived in a caravan in her backyard. Wagner had known this guy from years before in the gay circles he mixed in with Barry Lane. This guy's name was Ray Davies. Wagner and Bunting had actually helped Davies move into the caravan at the rear of Suzanne's property. Davies and Suzanne had even briefly entered a relationship, but it was never to last. It was a strange pairing of two old people, and Davies had turned violent on a few occasions, alongside many sexual liaisons with men during this time. Ray Davies was a petty criminal from Port Perry. He had a severe intellectual disability and displayed disturbing sexual desires at a young age. He engaged in bestiality, regularly taking dogs into his caravan at the rear of Suzanne's property. Neighbours too were spooked by Davies. It was said that he would masturbate in the bushes as schoolchildren walked by, even attempted to lure them into his caravan. So Davies' sinister proclivities didn't go down too well with John Bunting, when one day, Suzanne Allen told Bunting and Wagner what Ray Davies had been up to. Suzanne had her two teenage grandsons staying with her at the time, and they alleged that Davies had attempted to sexually assault them. Suzanne was furious and confronted Ray, and then almost certainly told John Bunting. On Boxing Day in 1995, Bunting and Wagner dragged Davies from his caravan, handcuffed him and took him for a drive. Wagner began laying into Davies during the drive, encouraged by the enthusiastic Bunting, who was driving and spouting verbal abuse at Davies. Wagner punched and punched, smashing Davies' face in and breaking a number of his bones. Cowering and in unimaginable pain, Davies had to endure a lunch break where Bunting and Wagner ate a takeaway meal in front of him before resuming their drive to Bunting's farmhouse in Bacara. Once there, they dragged Davies inside, a bleeding and crying mess by this point, and proceeded to beat his genitals over and over again with a metal rod while he cowered for mercy in the bathtub. Once his testicles had doubled in size due to the swelling, they marched Davies back into the car, proceeded to drive back to Waterloo Corner Road in Salisbury North, where Elizabeth Harvey was staying at the time with the kids, being Christmas and all, visiting friends and family. Wagner and Bunting beat up on him on the way, calling him a nappy raper, waste and a filthy faggot. Once they got to Waterloo Corner Road, Bunting couldn't wipe the smile off his face as he told Elizabeth Harvey he had a present for her. Elizabeth, doped out of her eyeballs, doesn't comprehend what Bunting's saying until they drag the bloody mess that is Ray Davies into the bathroom, where they continue to beat him and call him every slur under the sun. They eventually take Davies into the spare room, Bunting's room, with all of the wall spiders, where under Bunting's enthusiastic orders, Wagner strangles Davies to death with jumper cables, while Elizabeth repeatedly stabs Davies with a gardening implement. Afterwards, they dragged Davies' lifeless body through the house and dumped him in the gigantic hole outside under the tank stand, chuckling as he plummets into the dirt, still cupping his genitals. Do you like your present? Bunting asked Elizabeth. She too was now a murderer. The story Bunting told Suzanne Allen was that he and Wagner had taken Davies for a drive, pounded on him a bit, then dropped him off in the scrub someplace. Suzanne, besotted by Bunting's psychopathic charms, didn't question the explanation. But then, not long after this, Suzanne Allen vanished off the face of the earth. 
Her brother was the first to notice that she was missing off the back of her housemate Ray going walkabout. Suzanne's daughter also notices no sign of her mother and they both are perplexed to show up at the property and not see her car there. One minute it was in the driveway and the next it was gone. Inside the house, her pets were all starving hungry and the house had been raided of copious amounts of furniture and personal belongings. They attempt to contact Centrelink to see if her pensions had been accessed, but due to privacy, hit a brick wall. They reported her missing to the police, who had more luck with obtaining Centrelink records. Turns out Suzanne's pension was still being accessed, and they traced where? To an address in Bacara. The police call and speak to a... <clears throat> the police call and speak with a pleasant man named John Bunting, who confirmed Suzanne Allen lived with him for a short time before moving into state taking off with some bloke named Andy. The police thank him for his time, and with no evidence of foul play, Suzanne is racked up as a missing person, most likely of her own choosing. Meanwhile, John Bunting has told Elizabeth Harvey that he and Wagner went to rob Suzanne Allen one day when they walked in and saw her slumped over, clearly expired from cardiac arrest. It was a fitting explanation. Suzanne had numerous health problems alongside a fight with obesity, so Elizabeth didn't question that. What she did find strange was that Bunting and Wagner had proceeded to dismember and bury her body. They'd severed all of her limbs from her torso, slit out her heart and lung, scalped her, disemboweled her and decapitated her, before bagging her and dumping her remains on top of Ray Davies in the hole in the backyard at Waterloo Corner Road. Turns out, Bunting thought she was a tooth fairy. She'd effectively enabled Davies in his pedophilia and exposed her grandkids to the horrors and was therefore complicit in the crimes. They continue cashing in Suzanne Allen's pension, Elizabeth Harvey administering the funds, paying off Suzanne's cash converter's debt over the next 12 months in some sort of warped display of ethics. And now their new place at Murray Bridge, they'd moved from Bacara by this point to Murray Bridge, was cluttered with furniture from Suzanne Allen's house. By 1997, Robert Wagner had renounced homosexuality and wouldn't even discuss his former relationship with Barry Lane. Wagner had started dating a woman named Maxine Cole. Maxine's sister was named Nicole Zarita. Nicole had a son in 1991 and shortly thereafter bought a house in Salisbury North the only area that she could afford to buy, before Maxine moved in with her for a short time prior to getting her own place. Maxine dated a man named Peter Gardiner before they separated and she got together with Robert Wagner. But through Peter, Nicole and Maxine met his brother, who was named Michael. Michael Gardiner went by the name Michelle, he was openly gay, and he wanted gender reassignment surgery but couldn't afford it. He was 19 by the time he met Nicole Zarita through her sister Maxine and Nicole offered for Michael to board with her for a while. Michael was a delightful young man, cheerful, a good housemate. He didn't drink or smoke. He was openly flamboyant and a pleasure to be around. He'd had a tough childhood and unfortunately a common and recurring series of details similar to the others we've heard in this case. Sexually abused as a young boy and a childhood mostly spent in foster care. Through circles of friends that are too convoluted to describe, Maxine Cole had made friends with Jamie Vasakis. She likes him at first and eventually would end up dating his friend Robert Wagner and later she'd fall pregnant to Wagner. She had a couple of children of her own from a previous relationship too. 
Mac soon soon meets the extended circle of Lasarcus and Wagner, which includes the short and assertive John Bunting and a creepy-looking bloke named Mark Hayden. The crew begin to frequent their house, discussing what Wagner told Maxine was men's business. The house was an absolute putrid mess, like everywhere else Wagner had lived. And around this time in late 1997, Nicole Zarita was living just around the corner from her sister Maxine in Mofflin Road, with her openly gay boarder, Michael Gardner. Wagner hated Michael Gardner from the outset for obvious reasons. He was friendly and effeminate, kind to Maxine's kids when he visited, and he embodied everything Wagner had grown to despise through the guidance of his mentor, John Bunting. But there was one incident in particular that pushed Wagner over the line of dislike for Michael Gardner to pure hatred, and it was an innocuous and innocent occurrence, which in reality, Wagner, Bunting and co were capable of twisting to suit their needs. While playing with Maxine's kids, Gardner put one of his hands over one of the kids' mouths to stop them from speaking. It was an innocent move amidst playing a game, not a sinister intention. Problem was, Wagner, who'd been abused by a man as a child, had had the same thing done to him. On the 6th of September, Nicole Zarita travelled interstate for work and left Michael to take care of the house in her absence. Robert Wagner knew he was there alone, and during this time, he and John Bunting pounced. They swooped into Zarita's house and abducted Gardner, forcing him into their car and driving him out to Bunting's house at Murray Bridge. There, they dragged him out to the shed at the rear of the property, where Bunting and Wagner proceeded to inflict brutal torture on the 19-year-old. They laughed and yelled insults at Gardner and he was begging for his life before jolting him with repeated electrical shocks. Then they burned his left arm and testicles with a lit cigarette, revelling in the young man's screams and painful winces between torture methods, all the while bunting insulting him and egging Wagner on. They strung him up with a slipknot noose around his neck, fastened to an overhead beam, and Bunting began taunting Michael Gardner, imitating his high-pitched voice and chuckling as Wagner began to strangle him. Gardner would fall down and the pair would order him to stand up again, until finally Michael Gardner just couldn't stand up anymore after enduring so much brutal torture. John Bunting would later retell the events to his young protege, Jamie Vasakis, laughing heartily. He found it hilarious that Gardner had tried to stand up and just couldn't any longer, He'd just fallen and flopped and died. But before Gardner took his final breath, Bunting and Wagner executed their plan to explain his disappearance. They forced Gardner to make a phone call to an extended family member who he was planning on moving in with in the coming months. Gardner, clearly under duress, the family member would later recall, told them that he was still planning to come and live with them but had to go up north for a while to sort out some personal problems. When the family member asked where he was going, Gardner replied, Snowtown. Nicole Zarita returned home a couple of weeks later to find her house ransacked and Michael nowhere to be seen. Surprised at the situation, she made some initial inquiries as to his whereabouts. No one knew where he was. The only people who had spotted him were Robert Wagner and John Bunting. They claimed they'd seen Gardner at the local service station a few days after she'd left. Then Nicole received a spate of strange calls where someone was impersonating Michael Gardner, feigning being sorry for looting her house, about asking for his ID and telling her not to go to the cops or he'd go to the tax office on her. 
The calls grew increasingly threatening until about a week later, while still tidying her upturned house, Nicole discovered Michael's wallet under his bed. Nicole was suspicious, but obviously her mind didn't immediately go to foul play, thinking Michael had probably fallen in with a misguided person or persons. Upon finding the wallet, a friend of hers who she'd met through Maxine and Wagner, a nice young bloke, albeit a bit unstable and a junkie, named Jamie Vlasakis offered to help. He suggested they should fake a break-in at a commercial premises and leave Michael's wallet there, save them the trouble of searching for him, which Nicole had been actively doing all across town, why waste their time anymore? With Jamie's plan, the police would take over looking for him. Nicole continued to search for Michael, visiting the service station where Wagner and Bunting had last seen him, speaking with the attendant. Still, she found no trace of her young boarder who seemingly had gone off the rails and vanished while she was away for work. Meanwhile, Robert Wagner's mother Carol is much happier these days now her boy is settled with a young family, away from the dreadful pedophile Barry Lane. She unhesitatingly lets Wagner and his friend John Bunting, who he does work with on occasion, store things in her backyard, mainly old vehicles they're working on repairing. One time while visiting her son, Carol notices a big black plastic barrel with a screw-top lid in the boot of the car in the driveway. The boot was pulled down over it, but it was too big to properly fit in the boot, so it had been secured with an Oki strap. Carol turned to John Bunting and asked him what the barrel was for. Compost. Bunting said. Little did Carol know that at that very moment, another similar barrel was in John Bunting's shed at his house in Murray Bridge, with Michael Gardner's dead body inside, dissolving in hydrochloric acid. And that's where we're going to put a pin in the first half of this case, to be continued next episode. We've generally tried to steer away from two-parters. We've had a couple of episodes that were contenders for it, Christopher Wilder, Catherine Knight probably too, but this case is just so vast, so many people and moving parts that we simply couldn't tell it the way we wanted to in one digestible episode. So we've got a string of brutal murders already here set against this low socioeconomic backdrop with a bunch of undesirables living off government benefits and at the centre of it all, a nucleus of psychopathic killers. And we've just scratched the surface on what these guys are going to end up doing, Chloe. Believe it or not, it's going to get a whole lot darker next week. Yeah, it's hard to believe that it's going to escalate, but Mm. it will. So we'll save any thoughts we have for the end of part two of this. But Sean, do you have a happy thought before we move on? I do. And it's kind of leeching off your happy thought to follow, which, uh, but I'll take credit for coming (laughs) up, (laughs) injecting some music into things. But it's just random Spotify playlists. I've found so much good music, new music that I just never Mm. would have found otherwise Mm. um, with some of these playlists, the suggested playlists that come up in the last few months. And I found a lot of uh, lo-fi indie stuff that I've never been really into in the past. It's been really good to have on the background while while working. So, That's cool. Particularly while writing stuff like this. It's, yeah. Uh, nice. I always find nostalgic things on those playlists. I don't often find new stuff. That's cool. Okay. I like it. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, mine is also music-related. Um, I've been listening to a lot of Childish Gambino, the Splendor in the Grass is on at the moment and I have confusing feelings about that, that I love music and I would love to go, but I hate camping. (laughs) So um, in an effort to get involved in it, he's playing there. Um, I've also been watching a lot of Community and I always seem to listen to him after I watch that. He happens to be in it. Um, But driving here, I was listening to nothing but Childish Gambino 
one song called Freaks and Geeks on repeat, actually. And I think I drove a bit faster than I should have. Um, but I was singing the whole time, super loud, really bad rapping myself, missing words and mispronouncing them, I'm sure. But it was awesome. And it put me in a good, it was pump up song. <laughs> yeah, good. We might post our pump up songs, actually. Yeah, That'd we should. Idea. We'll share them on our Instagram stories. <laughs> um, so if you do have any case suggestions, feedback or questions, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime Dash Podcast. And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head on over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $2 per month, you'll get bonus episodes, case updates, debriefs, and much, much more. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please do leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us a lot and helps other people find the show as well. Thank you so much to everyone who reviewed us this week. This week, we also have a brand new premium Patreon episode dropping for all of our loyal Patreon supporters. So we're in Japan this week, finishing up our overseas trip uh, this season, and we're covering the sickening case of the otaku murderer. So if you've been wondering what goes on over on Patreon, now's the time to jump on board and check it out. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you all again next week. Thanks. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 